You are listening to audio from Summit Community Church. You can join us Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. on our YouTube channel at SCC Morganton. Thank you, Carrie. You may be seated. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Mike. Many of you I recognize, and it is exciting to see you. Many of you I do not recognize, and that is also exciting to see you as well. For a pastor, that means a lot of good things. Um, If you are unaware, last March, I left the pastoral team here at Summit Community Church, and I moved my family back to the Raleigh area where I entered into a residency program. Uh, Think of like a a doctor after they go to med school, they go into residency, or a teacher. After they're kind of done with their schooling, they'll do student teacher. Think of it kind of like that. My family and I have landed at a church in downtown Raleigh called Vintage Church. The elders called and asked if I would be willing to come back and cover for Mike um, during some of his leave, and I said, absolutely. You give me the dates, I'll be there. And so I'll be back uh, four times over the next couple months, and I am excited about it. My family loves this church, and we miss you guys deeply. We really do. Our oldest son, Miles, took his first steps in that office down the hall with John and Sherry and Denise watching. Uh, there's a bunch of you that are still on a, on a text chain uh, with me, and I text them to pray for me every, every Sunday when I step up to preach, and they fervently pray for my ministry. One of my jobs in Raleigh is that I just travel around to different churches and get to preach for a bunch of different congregations. And that can be fun at times, but it's also incredibly intimidating. Walking into a place where you don't know a soul and you don't recognize anyone and here you are having to preach. And in those, in those weeks before where I write the sermon, oftentimes y'all's faces are the ones that come to mind and are a great comfort and joy to me. And so because of that, I just want to say thank you and that it is an honor and a privilege uh, to be back over these weeks. And we are excited to be here. If you're new here and you have no idea who I am, let me just tell you, I want to encourage you. This is a good place. This is a good place for you. This is a good place. There's space here for you. There is. This church ain't perfect. And they've never said that they were, but they definitely are not. But if you will plant yourself here, If you'll stick it out through that beginning awkward phase, if you'll plant yourself here, you'll find what my family found, which is that there are many here who love Jesus and they want their lives to count, bringing worthy and honor and glory to his name and that you will find uh, that this place deeply loves him and wants to make much of him. And so I invite you, if you're new, uh, to stick it out here. Um, It's an interesting season, but I really think you should try. As I prepared for today, a story keeps coming to mind. My dad is an avid golfer, super golfer. Uh, He plays golf multiple times a week with the same guys they've been playing for like over a decade. And every once in a while, when I've got time off work, they'll allow me to come out and play with them. And I'm terrible at golf, but it is so fun to get out there in the open air with my dad and his friends. And often I'll ride in the cart with one of my dad's buddies. His name is Mr. Marshall. And now Marshall is an older man and he's a gentleman and he's a patient man and he really loves the Lord. And so I love riding with Mr. Marshall because he's super patient at my lack of golfing ability and how I'm slowing everyone down. And I'll never forget a few years ago, I was riding in the cart with Mr. Marshall, like we always do. And we were separated from the rest of the pack. Like I couldn't even see anyone else. 
I don't remember why, but probably because we were chasing my ball for like the millionth time and he was patiently helping me try to find it. And he randomly stopped the cart. And when you're a guy and you're on the golf course, we only talk golf. Like that's all we're there to talk about. We don't talk about real serious stuff. Mr. Marshall decided to flip it up on me that day. And so he stopped the cart and he looked at me and he said, Mike, I just want to let you know, your dad loves you so much. I really appreciated that that day. He went out on a limb a little bit. And I know exactly what he was saying. This is what he was saying. Mike, I know you know your dad loves you. I know he tells you. I hear him on the phone with you. I know he tells you. But I want to let you know, I ride with him hours in a cart every week. And I know he loves you too. He talks about you all the time. He's so proud of the man that you've become. You see, it really meant a lot to me that day that Marshall would kind of step out on a limb there and do that. And in some ways, that is what is, I'm hoping will happen today. That's my goal today, is that I will be Mr. Marshall, and you will be the terrible golfer, and I will remind you, and then I will re-remind you, and then I will re-re-remind you that your Heavenly Father loves you. He's crazy about you. And I hope that not only helps your, your theological thinking and your mind, but it actually stirs your affections. It warms your heart to his passion for you. And so that's what we're going to see. Now, before we jump in, I want to jump two hurdles, if we could. Two hurdles. I'll be very quick. The first is this. Everyone in here has some kind of experience with a father. Everyone, right? Uh, some absent, some great. Some present, some gentle, some kind, some angry, some rude, some demanding, some perfectionistic, some abusive, some violent, some gracious, and some loving. We all have experience with fathers. And I've found that a lot of times when we talk about God as being a father, we tend to run the metaphor backwards. And by that, I mean we take our earthly father, or we take the fathers that we've seen in our friends' lives, or we take the fathers that we see in TV and in movies, and we run God through that filter as if he's like them. And he's not. We're running it backwards. God being a father means that he is fathering. He is fathering in its perfect form, in its total form, in its flawless form. Like if you opened the de de dictionary and looked up the definition that he would be there and that every father that you and I have experienced in our life is really, no matter how good, an imperfect and stained example of his fatherly nature. And this matters. This matters a ton. Can I tell you why? A writer who has uh, dearly influenced me and my wife, his name is J.I. Packer. He went to be with the Lord a while ago in his seminal work, Knowing God. This is what he says. Listen to him. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, Find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he doesn't understand Christianity very well at all. It matters. The second hurdle today is that we are going to be in the book of Hosea. And now if you're here today and you're like, I didn't even know there was a book of Hosea, that is perfectly okay. You're welcome here. Many people don't. Hosea is this really small book in the Old Testament that the church does not talk about enough. And Hosea is an interesting book. It's kind of a scandalous story. In the book of Hosea, there's this prophet named Hosea, and he is called by God to marry a prostitute whose name is Gomer. And after he marries her, Gomer continues to go out on the town and sleep with other lovers. And Hosea is required to take her back at great cost, financial cost, emotional cost, spiritual cost, physical cost to himself. He's required to take him back. And God uses that story to show his nature to us, 
that he is like a good spouse who will always, always take his adulterous lover, you and me back. And after that story, Hosea just starts preaching. He's like, oh man, I got this good. I'm a I'm going to tell someone about it. And he starts preaching. And that is the verses that we are going to see today. We're going to see his preaching. And he's talking about God, not as spouse, but actually as father, his fatherly nature. And he's doing that because he's trying to woo you and me back to him. He's trying to show us, oh, isn't he good? Don't you want to come back to him? And so that's what we are going to see today. We're going to see the fatherly nature of our father. And that will point out the childlike nature of you and me. And then we'll worship him. Let me pray for us. We'll jump in. Father, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word will stand forever. It is a perfect and withstanding and correct word, and we thank you for this. We stand before you and we tell you it is not your word that needs help. It is our understanding of your word that needs help. So would you help us now? Would you help us be led by your word and your spirit to make much of your son? And we ask all this in his precious name and all God's people in one accord said, amen. All right, let's jump in. We'll be in Hosea 11, 1 through 4 today. Um, We'll start with Hosea 11.1. 1. It says this, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now before this point, God's people have been disobedient to God. They've treated God a lot like a genie. Like it, he, he's this, you can rub it uh, when you need a wish or when you need something or where you need something to really go your way in your time, how you desire, then you talk to God. But if everything's going exactly how you want it to go, you just kind of put him on the shelf. He doesn't really have much purpose or much place in your life. That is how they have been treating their God. He freed them from slavery and they're kind of like, yeah, that's great. Thank you for freeing us. But now we kind of want to just live our lives our own ways. That is how the people have been in this passage. And notice what it says about God and his relation to it. He says, they're my children. They're still my children. Look at the familial nature he uses. And child here, think a baby. That's what he's talking about. Like a helpless, immature baby. And they aren't just helpless and immature babies. They are his helpless and immature babies. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where the Amber Alert goes off on your phone and there's like a child missing kind of thing. Those are always scary, like sad experiences. Imagine picking up your phone and your child's name is listed. That's no longer a helpless child. That is my helpless child. See, the response would be visceral in that situation. This is what Hosea is saying about the love of the Father for you and me. He loves us. Not because we're lovable, not because we deserve love, not because we're beautiful, but just because he does love. We are his. Hosea references the Exodus story here. That's what he's talking about with Egypt, when God freed people from Egyptian slavery. It's really interesting. If you look at the Bible, why did God free those people from slavery? Not because they were beautiful. Not because they were great. Not because they were perfect. He chose them because he chose them. And he loves them because he loves them. This is what the scriptures tell us. Deuteronomy 7 says this, For you are a holy people. It just means a set-apart people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord has his heart set on you and chose you, not because you're more numerous than all the peoples, for you're actually the fewest of all the peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors. He brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In other words, he didn't choose them because they were choosable, lovely, or beautiful. He chose them because he loves them. I've been trying to think of where this illustration comes from. I don't know. Have you ever seen like a movie or something where someone grabs a flower and they're like, he loves me, he loves me not? I don't even know what that's from, but it was in my head. He loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. That might make for a really dramatic 
like love scene, terrible theology. With our God, it's he loves me, he loves me, he loves me, he loves me, out of petals, pick up another flower. He loves me, he loves me, he loves me. Friends, he just loves. This is the nature of our Heavenly Father. He loves you. You, can you believe that? You, like even you, unbelieving you, disobedient you, dark you, the you that's promised you've done that thing for the last time only to return to it the very next day. You loves you. He's crazy about you. He watches and he cares for you. And that's a lot. That's not all he is. That's just the first verse. Verse three, Hosea continues with this wooing to the father. He says this, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. That's just another name for Israel, like the Northern kingdom here. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the hand, but they never knew that I healed them. Here he sees a teaching father. Even earthly fathers do this and, and they're sinful, right? Uh, even earthly fathers know that a child's first steps, you like hold onto their hands and their arms and you guide them around and you don't expect them to sprint like their first time standing up. You just don't expect it because it's just not even a thing. Like no kid ever does that. And even earthly fathers are celebratory and rejoicing over their kid just taking a few steps. And those are stained examples of what fathering is. Here we see our heavenly father and he's using the exact same metaphor as you being a baby, like a helpless baby who can't even take steps and him holding your arms and delighting in you at every step you take. You see, wobbling with help in a good direction is worthy of rejoicing for him. It's worthy of celebrating for him. This is true times a million with your heavenly father. He is not expecting perfection from you out the gate. He's just not. He doesn't expect you to come to him and to know the Bible and have it memorized perfectly. Now, let me be clear. He's a teaching father, though. It means he's not going to leave you where you're at, but he's not expecting perfection. He just loves you, enjoys you, knows you, desires you, wants to know you more and more. And look at the nature of the teaching here. Look at what verse three said. It said, I took them by the hand, but they didn't know that I was the one doing it. They didn't know that I was doing it. Parents in the room, When's the last time your kid came up to you and said, Mom, Dad, I just want to say thanks so much for teaching me how to walk. I know I was wobbly at first, but you were really, you were good. Like you were really good at it. Or Mom, Dad, thanks for changing all my diapers. I know it took me a while to figure out the potty situation, but you, man, you did that. And that's just so, I'm just grateful. Or Mom and Dad, thanks for teaching me how to talk. Like I know I can talk good today. And it's because of you. You put up with my slurring and my babbling for a long time. Your kids will never say that to you. Why? Not because they're not grateful, right? I'm sure they're incredibly grateful. And believe me, once they have kids of their own, they'll be incredibly grateful. But why won't they ever say that to you? Because they don't remember. You see that? They don't remember those moments at all. They do not remember you holding their arms and delighting over them, having to film and take pictures at them moving in any kind of direction you were just so proud of. They don't remember the sleepless nights. They don't remember the diaper changes. They don't remember any of that. That is how infant a baby is in comparison to you. They're just unaware of all you were doing in their life. And this is how Hosea is referencing you and God. Like the distance between you and a baby, but times a million between you and God, that you also are ridiculously unaware to how he has been holding you and wobbling with you and walking and rejoicing in your steps towards him and away from lesser lovers for a long time. Psalm 136 is super helpful here. I've been marinating on this a little bit. 
Psalm 136 is this beautiful psalm where it recounts a lot of Israel's history. And then in between every verse, it says, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And so it will say like creation, God created everything. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And then the people were enslaved to the Egyptians. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever over happy things and sad things, over good things and bad things, over things that they remember and things that they do not even remember. The psalmist ends this section in the exact same way. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Why would he do that? He's trying to tell them it was always him. He was always there. He even references things like creation. They weren't alive at creation. And he says, oh, even over creation, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Friends, this means that over the best parts of your life, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And over the worst parts of your life, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Over the waiting parts of your life, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Good, bad, happy, sad, over the boring parts of your life, the weeks you can't even remember, the steadfast love of the Lord is forever. But friends, he's not just a loving and teaching father. He is also a providing father. Look with me at verse four. It says this. I led them with human cords, with ropes of love. To them, I was like one who eases the yoke from their jaws. I bent down to give them food. Now, be honest, commentators get a little weird at this verse. Because verses like one through three, it's like God is a father and we are children. And then this one sounds like God is a farmer and we are farm animals. And so commentators get a little weird of like, how did Hosea switch that? Why did he switch that? That kind of stuff. It kind of doesn't matter in this situation. Because whether he is a good farmer, caretaking, providing for his animals, or a good father, caretaking or providing for his kids, the metaphor kind of works either way, right? That he is a good provider in that kind of way. That he provides ropes of love and cords that guide. It means he restricts you and I. He puts guardrails around you and I. That's how a good caretaker and parent does it, right? Kids in the room, teenagers in the room. I'm sure you think your parents' favorite word is no. As a parent myself, let me tell you, your parents' favorite word is no. There's no getting around it. But a parent that says yes all the time is not a good parent. Can we agree? Like if one of my sons asked me to go play in a busy road, I should say no, right? Shouldn't I say no? Or if one of my sons asked me, hey, can I drive the car? I should say no. Like, no, you're four. No. That's not how that works. It's bad for you. It's bad for me. It's bad for us. It's bad for the car. It'll be bad for the other cars. It is not good for you to do that, son. That's the difference between me and my earthly sons. You and your heavenly father is like times a million. The gap there is so much bigger. He provides by restricting us. Maybe areas in your life right now where he feels like he is restricting you. It's because our God is good in that way, friends. He sees what you and I don't see, and he knows what you and I don't know. Like a good parent knows what little kids don't understand. It's like that times a million. He knows often what you think is freedom for you is actually restriction. And what you think is restriction is actually freedom. And oh, he's a good father. He's willing to give you what you need over what you desire and over what you want. He's long-suffering with you in that way. He's patient with you in that way. Isn't he good? And look at the words there. It, he's so communal. He's so close. He bends down. He releases burden. He offers food. He relaxes. He's close and he's near. Friends, this is our father. He is gentle and he is kind and he is patient and he is loving and he's forgiving and he's celebratory over your little wins 
and he's gracious over your problems. And that is stupefying. Stupe- I, I never get to use that word. Stupefying. That's the only word you could use in this situation, right? Think about it. Think, think if you were the, the son of a king or an emperor or the son of a president or the son and daughter of like the richest person on the planet or something. Can you imagine the amount of security that would bring you? A lot, right? Can you imagine the amount of connections that would bring you? A lot. Can you imagine the sense of pride that would bring you? And here is Hosea saying the creator of the universe looks upon you as a father who loves his kids. It should be mind-blowing. It should be stupefying. It should be chewy. It should be something that's like, oh my gosh, that's incredible. It should rock our worlds. That's what Packer was getting at in his earlier quote. And now it kind of goes without saying, but when we look at the nature of the father, it has a funny way of revealing our nature as well. That's kind of how these things work. So let me tell you a little bit about us. Think of the passage. It has said this, that God was calling He was loving, he was teaching, he was taking, he was healing, he was leading, he was easing and feeding. That's what Hosea said all in those verses, that this is the Father, right? Well, those kind of work backwards to show you and I who we are as well. Let me give you an example, right? You call people who need to hear you, right? You feed people who are hungry, you you lead people who are lost, you heal people who are sick. You see how that works? how you can kind of use those words and work backwards to kind of see our nature as his children. This is really what the middle verse is getting at. If you're thinking, why do we skip verse two? We did it on purpose. And so we could come back to it right now. Verse two is showing you who you are and who I am in light of this father's love. Let's go to it. It says this, Israel, that means God's people or me and you in this situation called the Egyptians, even as Israel was leaving them, they kept sacrificing to Baals and burning offerings to idols. Look at the nature of the Israelites and ourselves. Look at the nature of the Father, how good he's been, how freeing he's been, how leading he's been, how teaching he's been, how he's wooing and loving and gentle. And then it says here that the Israelites continued to serve other things. They said, oh yeah, thank you for uh, freeing me from slavery. Thank you for creating me. I needed all that. But now I'm going to kind of put you on the shelf because now you're done with your job. And now I'm going to just live my life my way. And I'm going to pour myself into lesser things that do not matter, leaving you the one who is my loving, creating father on the shelf, because I just really don't need you that much right now. That is what Hosea is saying about the people. And this is true of the Israelites during this time. You can read the Old Testament. There's like a million verses that show they did this exact thing. God was nothing but gentle and feeding and kind and teaching and loving. And they said, thank you and pushed him aside and said, I'm going to pursue what I want. I'm going to pursue what I think I need. You know, you're just God. At the end of the day, I think I know what's best for me. I think I know the timing that's best for me. You just created everything. I mean, I know how to manage this life, this heart. You see, they forsake him. I'll just give you one example. Jeremiah 2, the whole passage gets at it. I'll just use one verse from Jeremiah 2. It says this, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for me, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Do you hear that? He says, the people have done two things. They've forsaken God, but they haven't just forsaken God. They have not just put God on the shelf. They then went to other things to try to find what only God could provide in lesser things. That's what they've been doing. In other words, they, uh, God is the source of peace and security and comfort and joy and pleasure. 
That is where all of that can be found. And they say, yeah, no, thank you. I'm going to go find it in these things over here. And Jeremiah uses the idea of cisterns. A cistern is just something that holds water, and he's saying they're broken. They're like cracked cisterns. In other words, they're like shiny colanders. You know what a colander is? It like looks nice. It can hold no water though. You know, the water just falls out of it. That's what Jeremiah is saying. We go and we find pleasure and comfort and joy and security and satisfaction in things that are other than our loving God. And the scary thing is those things promise like, oh, I can hold water. But at the end of the day, they don't. It just pours right out. We spend our life pouring ourselves into these things while the one who has been gracious and teaching and loving who has been healing all along before we can remember, who has been calling us to himself and loving us, is just saying, just come back to me. I'm where, all it's, I'm where it's found. I'll give it to you beyond measure. We go looking in other places. There's going to be a million things. Acclaim, what people think about you, money, comfort, sex, pleasure, substances, power, pride. You name it, we pour our lives into things that they sound like they will amount up to something. <clears throat> they ultimately do not. Tim Keller is really helpful here. He has this book called Counterfeit Gods, where he gives you a really good way to kind of diagnose, am I doing this? Am I doing this though? This is his quote. He says, anything that becomes more important and non-negotiable to us than God becomes an enslaving idol. In this paradigm, we can locate idols by looking at our most unyielding emotions. What makes us uncontrollably angry? anxious, or despondent. That just means hopeless. What racks us with guilt we cannot shake? Idols control us in this way since we feel we must have them or life is meaningless. So can I ask you, what is something that makes you incredibly anxious? What is something that makes you uncontrollably angry? What is something that makes you despondent? Like if it doesn't go the way you want it to go, life just doesn't feel like life is worth living. What is that thing? Something that makes you feel hopeless? It doesn't work out? What's something from your past that racks you with guilt? You just can't shake it. You just can't shake it. What Keller is saying is if you will take that emotion and whatever is stirring up that emotion in you, and you'll follow it backwards, like following smoke to get to the fire. If you follow it backwards, you will find a place where your heart is burning, burning, worshiping something other than your father. It is burning, trying to find security and pleasure and happiness and fulfillment in something other than him. And now here's the good news. Verse two comes between verse one and verse three. It sounds like a simple point, but isn't that important? Because it's verse one, God was a good father. Verse two, you and I have been disobedient and wayward children. And it doesn't end there, folks. Verse three and four show us. And yet, our God is a good, good father. Do you see that? You see, I think Hosea 11 is actually the Old Testament version of the prodigal son story. That's what I think. In Luke 15, there's a son who squanders his inheritance. He, he, he abuses the father's kindness and goodness. He wanders off and do, goes his own way. And yet the father is always watching and waiting and hopeful, hopeful that he will come back home. 
And he finally comes to his senses and he does. Comes back home. And you would imagine in our American individualistic mind, that's like, he needs to be punished, right? Oh, he needs to be punished for what he did. He comes home and they celebrate. They have a party. They dance. They sing. They put a robe on him. He comes home expecting to be made a servant. And the father says, my son, never be my servant. You're my son. Hosea is saying this is the father's love. To use his example from the whole book of Hosea, it's kind of like you and I have a spouse who is nothing but loving and kind and gentle and protecting and providing, and we just can't help ourselves but go around town and sleep with other people. And yet he always takes us back. He always takes us back. Isn't that good? Why? The passage from Matthew tells us. In Matthew 2, Matthew, the writer of the gospel, when he's talking about Jesus, he decides to reference this Hosea passage. It's interesting. Look at what it says. This is around the wise men's story. It says this, Matthew 2. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. For Herod's about to search for the child and kill him. So he got up and he took the child and his mother during the night, and he escaped to Egypt, and he stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. And then here's the quote. Hosea 11.1, what we started our service with today, Matthew decides to include it right here. He says, out of Egypt, I called my son. Why did he do that? Why did he bring Jesus into that story? Well, isn't he the bridge between Hosea 11.1 and Hosea 11.3? You see, Matthew's trying to reference him as the perfect son of God. He's trying to say, hey, Hosea 11 was about him, that he was the perfect son. That he's the one who experienced perfect fellowship with the Father. And yet you and I know that's not how the story ends, though. That the story ends with him going to a cross. He gets sacrificed on a criminal's cross. But why? If he's been perfect all along, why would he ever enter into a cross? Well, you know, for you and me, right? Disobedient children become obedient children of God. Not by our works and not by what we have done. By what the true Jesus Christ has done. The true Son. That means that he had an, a Hosea 11.1 experience with the Father and never had a Hosea 11.2 experience. He never bowed to a foreign God. He never tried to find what only God could give in lesser things. And yet he sacrificed himself on a sinner's cross so that you and I, who are not worthy of love, would be made loving, lovable, beautiful. What does that mean? It means you are not worthy of the Father's love. But Christ has made you so. You see that? It means that because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, who is counted as the more faithful Israelite, you and I are blameless. We can always come home to the Father. He will always receive us in warmth and gentleness and kindness because everything in you and I that is unlovable, that's unbeautiful, that's ugly, that's wrong, that's sinful, has already been put on his son. And therefore, you and I know if we will turn and come home, we will always, always be received with warmth, with grace, with love, and with mercy. That means if this is the first time you are hearing this, or the millionth time, the response is exactly the same. Hosea is saying, come to him, man. He's good, and he's warm, and he's not there to, to punish you, and he's not going to hammer you. He's going to receive you in grace and mercy 
Because everything in you that is unlovable, he has already placed on his son on your behalf. He's good in that way. That means today for the first time or millionth time, come home. Don't try to clean yourself up. Don't try to figure it out. Just come on home to him and receive the warmth and the grace that only he provides. As we land the plane, I want to go to the very end of the book of Hosea. Hosea ends it in a different way. There's this weird story, and then he's preaching, and then he ends it like this. He just kind of just falls off a cliff. He says, Hosea 14, let whoever is wise understand these things, and whoever is insightful recognize them, for the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. In other words, he says, friends, your God is your father, and he loves you. And because of the work of Christ, you can come to him and receive mercy and gentleness and warmth, whether it's the millionth time or the first time. But he's a good father. He's not going to force it. So you who are wise, you, understand, you who understand his loving nature, you who understand the atoning work of his son, come on home and find the grace and the mercy and the rest that only he can give. Let me pray for us and then we'll approach him in song. Father, you're too good to us. Before we were born, you had desired us and called us. You even sent your sons that we would come to know you, and yet we forsake it. We constantly look for satisfaction and joy and security and hope and fulfillment in things that are not you. And yet because of the work of Christ, you stand wooing and calling us back to you for the millionth time. We thank you for your love, for your fatherly affection. Holy Spirit, please take these next few moments and help us as sons and daughters return again to the Father. Help us be deeply stirred and affected by His love. We ask all this in the precious name of Jesus and all God's people in one accord said, Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Summit Community Church, please check out our website at summitchurch.me or on social media on Facebook or Instagram at SCC Morgantown.